Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Canoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure, and uh, welcome you to today's show where we're going to talk about new hire paperwork. Maybe it sounds like a super boring topic, uh, but this is one of those things that's actually so important uh, on, on a couple levels that, that people just don't necessarily think about. First, there are legal requirements that many employers, especially small businesses who don't specialize, have specialized staff in HR, even know exist. And so there are absolute legal requirements on a federal level. Uh, uh, layer on top of that, some state and municipalities. Uh, but we want, we want to make sure everybody understands what those big requirements are. But then also just culturally, what is that what is that first day in the job? What is the what are the days that lead up to that first day in the job? Then the first day in the job, and then let's say that first few days, that first week. What is that ex brand experience like for that employee, and, and and how does that set them up uh, in a good way or or a bad way? So uh, a regular guest to the show, a great contributor uh, in in the perfect guest for today's topic, Mary Simmons. Mary is our VP of HR Consulting. Uh, Edisher, sure, uh, for the past eight years, she's been an adjunct professor for the New York Institute of Technology. Uh, and prior to Assure, uh, Mary was the director of HR consulting for a 55-year-old HR consulting law firm in New York. So uh, couldn't have a better guest. Uh, welcome, Mary. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Okay. <clears throat> so let's let's uh, let, let's just kind of first talk about the, the, the topic in general. What is a proper onboard, excuse me, why is proper onboarding important? Well, I, I love what you already said, right? And I wanna tie into that. So every time we give these webinars, no matter what the topic is, what we're trying to drive for the employers is two pillars, right? Compliance and productivity engagement of their employees which leads to better retention, right? And better productivity, right? So our goals, our business goals are met. And you gotta start from the beginning, right? So the onboarding is very important to, first of all, infuse your culture, right? Grab those employees from day one. Turnover happens in the first three months at a much higher rate than it does after that. So first impressions count. And even though we definitely have some compliance that we have to pay attention to, some federal and some state forms that have to be filled out, it's how those are filled out. What's that employee experience? How easy are you making it? And how pleasant are you making it, right? Um, and I hear it from employees all the time when we do interviews, right? Oh, I, I, you know, from day one, it was difficult. The software wasn't easy to use. You know, they made me go to a portal. I, I couldn't even figure out my benefits. So employees are really paying attention to this and we really need to make this compliant, easy, and it needs to speak to, like you said, Mike, the brand of the organization. What's your employment brand? And are you driving that home from day one the first experience for that new employee. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would encourage people, the employers listening today to, to think of it in this way, that you've made an offer to someone, you've got their, their start date uh, planned out. <clears throat> From that point forward, so, so that's the proposal, right? You, you, you're now engaged. Marriage happened, the marriage, wedding day is their first day <laughs> in the job. The days that lead up to that, um, 
and the and, and the wedding day itself, but then the, the, the those first days after, people are going to come to this marriage with a set of expectations. They might be falsely high. They might be kind of sort of non-existent because they don't just don't think much of it. But they're but innately they're going to come with expectations, and you are either going to meet, exceed, or fall short of those expectations, right? And so. Uh, I couldn't encourage you uh, uh, enough. Mary's going to help us understand today the some of the just dropped dead legal requirements. You got to do this. this. This is just what the law says. But how do we create an onboarding experience uh, that really? I love you. You, you said uh, the, uh, the the phrase employment brand. Your employment brand is just so critical. How do you set the expectations for an employment brand, and then how do you live that out and setting that tone? Uh, in, in those first first few days. So maybe let's uh, just level set, you know, what what do you think the big components of onboarding a new employee are, Mary? So there there are those compliant forms, right? And and so the the first and, and I don't want to say the most important, but I want to I want to talk about the I9 a little bit more than we talk about some of the other forms. So that is the federal form that um that the employee shows that they are eligible to work in the United States, right? It doesn't prove that they're, you know, U.S. citizens because you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to work in the United States. Um, and as you said, I teach a, a course for, you know, the Society of Human Resource Management at a, at a college here in New York. And that is one of the questions on the big test, right? Does an I-9 prove citizenship or your eligibility it proves your eligibility and that that's a big differentiator because that i9 is audited very heavily so uh the biden administration has put 2.2 million dollars into auditors for the i9 alone okay so it's been very quiet during the pandemic those auditors were home like the rest of us not to coming into the employer's workplace and doing audits of the i9 the fines on the i9 are astronomical i will also say that there is a new i9 form in the works and it'll be coming out anything you know government in the works might mean a year from now they haven't even set a date when that new i9 is coming but that's also important because when we do i9 audits for our clients mike a lot of time we go in and we go, you filled this form out perfect. And they're like, yay. And we're like, no, it's expired. <laughs> it's an expired form that you were using. So the oh. I-9 form gets updated every <clears throat> couple of years. Uh, and it's even so specific that sometimes it gets, it, it expires and then the federal government doesn't come out with a new one for another year. So you have to know when the expired form was replaced right um and so it's very important not only that every single employer fills out an i9 they fill it out properly um and later we're going to talk about you know how are we storing these documents and the i9 has different regulations than some of the other forms uh and again that to me is your most important federal form a, it's audited on a regular basis. B, the fines are astronomical. I have an employer from a past life that was actually put out of business 
It was a landscape firm, had no idea they had to fill out I-9s, Mike, did not have them for their 100 employees, and the fines put them out of business. <clears throat> really, really important. Yeah, I mean, th this, <clears throat> we, we want to talk about employment brand and all the soft stuff, all the employee productivity reasons to have a good onboarding experience, but this one's just so black and white, right? And, and I think there are so many, so many people, you, you, you hang out a shingle for yourself, you know, God, God bless the USA, you can start a business uh, anytime you want. Um, and maybe you were, maybe you were a, a sole proprietor and then you hired a, 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 your first employee uh, who was a friend of the family and then you had a second employee, a third employee and all of a sudden you find yourself a 10 employee company and you're an expert at say landscaping or kitchen remodeling or uh, a tattoo artist or a bookkeeper, <laughs> whatever the case may be, but you don't know HR onboarding laws, right? So uh, th this is maybe if you, if you walked away from this uh, uh, today's webinar with only one thing, it's the criticality of getting your I-9s, making sure you're filling the current forms out in your story. Can you speak to how people should be storing their I-9? So there's, there's really no legal requirement uh, on how you store them, but there's a lot of best practices. So that that's that's one of the things that we talk about all the time, right? And I like that you said, you know, with the laws, a lot of the laws are very straightforward. You can do X and you cannot do Y, right? It's very straightforward. But what we try to interpret for employers is how do we make customize to the extent that you can certain laws for for uh, your organization, your culture, your business, your employees, right? And what are the best practices that we see? Because we're dealing with, you know, 20 landscapers and, you know, 100 clients that own restaurants. And, and, and so how does that differ? So, but for best practices for storing those I-9s, we recommend that they are put in a binder. And the reason for that, Mike, is because when those auditors come in, right, those, those government agencies are all talking to each other, um, and we want them to only look at your I-9s. We don't want them to have to go to the employee folder to look, or the employee file to look through all the other documents we have there to look for the I-9. Because if they see something else, you know, they may call the Department of Labor and say, hey, you need to come over here also and do an audit on this employer. And, and again, this is what I've seen through our experience of dealing with so many different organizations, right? So that binder has a um, current employee binder and then it has a terminated employee binder, right? So I-9s have a lot of regulations and so when an employee terminates, you need to keep that I-9 for a, a certain amount of time and then you can destroy the I-9, right? But until then, you have to have a terminated binder as well. And you need to be going into that regularly and saying, okay, is it one year after termination or three years after the employee was, was hired? Um, oh, okay, it's been enough time, I can destroy this I-9. But otherwise, you're keeping it. And that is something that the auditors are looking at besides how you fill it out. So it, it, it makes it, you know, challenging for sure. 
Mary, Mary you, you, you mentioned uh, the auditors might read. So if, if you just say, okay, here's all my personnel files, <clears throat> whether they're paper or electronic, uh, whether they're stored in a, a system of record or just uh, electronic versions on a hard drive somewhere. Um, right. When you open all that up to the auditors, you, you mentioned, so it's a really interesting point that you open yourself up to that if they find something else, they can refer to Department of Labor. What is the... Right. What is the uh, agency that these auditors report to? Is this Homeland Security? Is this IRS? Yeah, no, it's Homeland Security because it's right. eligibility to work in the United States. Right. So that's that's who's governing these. And you know, um, <clears throat> you know, on another note, you know, in general, getting back to onboarding because I feel like I I got ahead of myself a teeny bit. Really, what we're doing is we're introducing the job and the expectations. And this is really important, Mike, because we need to make sure that our employees understand the expectations of the job. So when we're coaching and counseling managers and business owners about employees not performing well, one of the first things I ask is, well, have you set expectations? Have you given a job description, which was another webinar that you and I did? Have you sat down and spoken to them about you know, what are their responsibilities and unpacked everything so they understand it. You know, there also may be procedural man, man, manuals that you want to give at onboarding, right? Simple things like how do they sign in, right? How do they get paid? When do they sign in, right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've had employers say, yeah, a lot of my employees take the bus to work. And as soon as they get in, they sign in and then they go to the employee cafeteria and they have a cup of coffee. And I'm like, well, did you tell them? Is it explicit in your handbook, in your timekeeping policies that they can't do that, right? Um, right. What, are the, what are the work rules, right? You know, what is, you know, certainly we're gonna give them the employee handbook, but it's not enough, Mike, to give the employee handbook. You can't just trust that the employees are going to read it. Those are long documents and half of it they don't understand. <laughs> so we need to explain it, right? Um, onboarding, you know, I really like what we do is we create a checklist and we, we create for our employers, you know, what does the first week, the first month, the first three months look like at the employer? And something as simple as showing them around the building is a big deal, right? Um, you know, you can imagine, you know, in, in the headquarters in Austin, right? You have to have a badge to get into the main office. You know, I needed instructions on how to use the cappuccino machine. I mean, that, that stuff's important, right? Yeah, absolutely it is. <laughs> so, you know, again, you know, the benefits information you're going to go over. Um, we're going to talk a little bit, take a deeper dive besides the I-9 in a minute. What are the required forms? Um, you know, something about the work equipment, right? Um, did you turn their computer on, right? So there's, there's things that the organization also has to do to prepare for that new employee. Again, we're tying back to the employment brand. If your employment brand is that you're family oriented, is that real? You have to make that real. So their computer should be ready. Their equipment should be up and running. 
Um, do they need keys? You know, how do they sign in? I had an employer that was a uh, shipping organization, and there's there's a lot of rules around that that um, industry. And so every time that I went to the employer, and every time an employee enters, you have to sign in, and you have to sign off that you understand the different procedures because that's the type of organization, that's the industry standard, that's what you have to do. But if you didn't explain that to the employee, you know, what ha what's happening with this employer is em new employees were coming in and not signing in. And it was like red flags were going off. And, and yeah. so we had to unpack that for them and say, did you explain it day one that they have to do it every day, that it wasn't just their first day of work. And you can imagine this happens at a lot of employers, right? Um, so besides those mandated forms, what are we doing as an employer to make that experience positive, to make it tie back to our culture? And, right. you know, we always talk about DEI. <clears throat> what are we doing to make sure that this is respectful, right? And that they we are explaining that this is an organization that has zero tolerance for any type of unprofessional or disrespectful behaviors. Yeah, you, know, I, I, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said explaining the why. I, a, I remember I used to coach my, uh, my kids when they were in sports. I uh, coached uh, Little League football, and I would coach the linemen, and I'd scream and yell and get them all pumped up, and they loved Coach Finway because I was super intense, and we had a lot of fun with them. But I, but what I realized when I, when I was getting them all pumped up and excited, they weren't, they didn't understand their roles and the responsibilities, and they weren't nearly as effective. When I got a lot more effective, was when we really silently, calmly, quietly explained why. Here's your assignment, but not just your assignment. This is why your assignment is so important because this is what else is happening, right? And I think the the the, the lesson is the same here. First day in the job, it's like deer in the headlights for these guys, right? They they're they're just figuring out where the bathroom is in the cappuccino machine and <laughs> know what their general job is, but they don't they're not remembering names and faces. And and so our job, I think, is to is to really plan ahead. I think a successful first day and a successful onboarding requires a lot of planning. Uh so just like you said, is is their computer on? Well, that actually requires provisioning the computer. It requires provisioning the login. Uh, do they have access to their calendar? And if so, are there already meetings in that calendar welcoming them and, part, uh, and outlining the details of that on, onboarding process? All that takes a lot of planning. And so that planning married with the methodical explanation of why. And Mary, if you could speak into this for me. I think a lot of people get hung up. So you and I did a webinar a few weeks ago on, on the importance of handbooks. And it's just like this drop dead, no brainer. You really have to do handbooks, right? Uh, it's beyond just the best practice. Um, but by definition, handbooks can be a little bit legalistic. And, and I loved what you said. Don't just hand them the employee handbook. A, they might not read it. And then B, even if they do, it, like you said, if, if, my, if my employment brand is we're family or we're a casual, fun environment, and you hand them this super legalistic document, those don't jive, right? But if you go through page by page of the handbook, here, here's what this says, this is our policy. Now let me explain to you why that's important to us and why we chose that policy. The, the impact is gonna be so much deeper 
uh, and they'll make that connection and you can, dare I say, soften the expectation of this legalistic document to, to really help them understand why it's important, but more importantly, understand your employment brand. Can you speak into that? Yeah, of course. And, and you know, when we create an employee handbook for our clients, we're making it culturally correct, right? We're making a connection. And, and we do try to soften some of that legalistic um, speak, right? And make it understandable. And what we recommend is we like to go over it at a very um, in-depth, uh, you know, informational source with the managers, right? Because the managers may have to answer right. some of the questions that come out of the handbook. And the handbook also keeps our managers consistent, right? When they're when they're answering questions. And then we like to do an all staff meeting where we go over the highlights of the handbook. And that should be an ongoing thing happening at onboarding as well, right? Because what, what happens when an employee gets an employee handbook? They go, all right, where's the time off policies? And they go right to that page and they read that and that's all they read, Mike. Right. And now they don't they don't know, you know, when their medical benefits start or they don't know how to sign in properly or what are the rules that this organization has around overtime, right? That we, you know, you have to get approval for overtime before you work overtime. These are the important things that we like to dig in when we're doing an employee handbook and it does speak to culture and ties back to compliance, right? Because in a lot of cases, instances, we can't take money from an employee paycheck, let's say, unless we explicitly say um, that, you know, in X, Y, Z instances, you know, this is going to, you're gonna have to repay us for training, let's say, if you leave within three months. You're really not gonna, in a lot of states be able to do that unless you have an explicit policy in your handbook to do that. So again, that legal piece is always tying back to employee engagement, how you state it, right? How it's explained um, and you know, how does it intersect? How does your policy intersect with the culture that you've created, right? And right. doesn't erode that culture. Right, right. Okay, let's. Uh, so I think we I think we covered the concept. I think everybody gets it. Okay, we've hammered I nine. We're going to come back to uh, and revisit specific paperwork. But I think everybody understands the importance of creating an employment brand and the planning that leads up to this and why this is so important. Let, let's let's spend a moment talking about some of the more specifics around W four state withholding I nine. It, it, it's some some of the drop dead requirements legally that you need to have. Right, so we're mostly gonna talk about federal today because you know we have so many different employers that we work with in so many different states. So, you know, we did, you know, talk about the I-9, which I think is one of the most important. Obviously, you need to have your employees also fill out a W-4. And some of the recommended forms that we think are important would be confidentiality. So you can have a confidentiality agreement um, in your employee uh, it, confidentiality policy in your handbook, but understand that's not a confidentiality agreement, which is legally binding. 
right? Because your handbook should say, um, if everybody paid attention to our handbook webinar that you and I did, the handbook should say, this is not a contract of employment, um, but an agreement should be a contract and, and legally binding. So that confidentiality agreement should be separate from the handbook if that's something that your organization wants to have. And remember that in, in every case, when it comes to employment forms, we wanna be consistent. So you can say that there's a, a group of employees, let's just say the C-suite or everyone in HR gets that confidentiality agreement and nobody else in the organization, but you can't pick and choose and say, only Mary and Mike at Assure have to sign off on confidentiality agreements um, right. if we're not in the same position. So again, let's remember that everybody gets an I-9, everybody gets a W-4, but that confidentiality agreement is, is a best practice for many employers. And um, it's not mandated, of course, but if you give it, what is mandated is that you give it consistently um, across those classes of employees. Now, before we talk about some of the other forms, let's not ignore that there are state forms that will be different for um, some employers. And this is what becomes challenging, Mike, now we know almost every organization has employees in different states. We just have had a new employer join us. They only have 20 employees, but they're in eight different states. So now they have to pay attention to eight different state employment laws. And that is definitely going to impact the new hire paperwork that they give their employees. For example, you know, the, the popular states, you know, that, that tend to have a lot of state-specific laws, California and New York, both have wage theft prevention laws, and that comes with a form that has to be filled out at hire, and it also needs to be filled out at different points. It gets triggered at different points within the employee lifespan, um, but definitely at hire, immediately and i don't want to spend too much time on state forms but that is also highly um regulated there are hefty hefty fines that come with it not being done and it being done improperly um you know new york also has the it 2104 which is a another tax form that needs to be filled out by New York uh, organizations. And, and I don't wanna, even though I'm jumping backwards a tiny bit, lately I've had a lot of questions from employers on applications. And I don't want you employers sometimes will choose to give an application at this stage, right? They use the resume to hire the person and now they wanna use an application because an application quite frankly asks different questions. But what I want to caution employers is that there is a lot of regulations on an application, um, different, of course, after hire and before hire, right, is made that can go on that application, right? So New York and California, you know, just and a few other states recently, you know, made a mandate that you cannot ask current salary before um, or even after 
the offer is made. So that's very important. And then also a lot of employers have a ban the box regulation. A lot of states, excuse me, have a ban the box where you cannot ask about uh, felony convictions until after, till post offer, right? So that application, you know, again, a lot of employers are giving it before they do the interview, but there are a lot of employers who give it after the interview. And again, must be given consistently to classes of employees, but a lot of regulations on what can be on that application, uh, depending on when you trigger it. And this is an area where I, I you know, we—it's almost every weekly show we end up talking about this. The the pandemic obviously accelerated remote work. So even uh, businesses who are traditional brick and mortar, maybe you're a retailer, you're a manufacturer, and primarily you have uh, work site employees. Um, there are some jobs that that lend themselves to remote work, and all of a sudden uh, people are having employees relocate and doing work from new states or think, oh, I can I can now hire this person remotely, we've changed our policy, and I hire someone from a state that they've never uh, uh, had employees perform right. their working before, and all of a sudden they're out of, out of uh, compliance with state laws that they didn't even know exist because they never did business there. So, right. so I, I think the advice here is as simple as you have to know all the, uh, uh, the employment laws for every state that you have employees living and working. A hundred percent. And a lot of times employers will innocently say to me, well, I only have one employee in each of those states. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of laws that are triggered for one employee. And, and we understand how, how daunting that is. You know, that's, that's why employers utilize us to help them because we're a national organization that helps employers in many different states. And so, you know, also part of this new hire paperwork would be that acknowledgement for that handbook, right? I can't tell you how many times we've been, you know, supporting an employer in an unemployment claim, right? Saying, well, how did they know they had to give two weeks notice? Or how did they know that they, uh, you know, had to call in sick um, when they didn't show up for work? Well, here's the handbook acknowledgement that they did that they um, re- received and read the handbook, and that policy is clearly in the handbook, right? And you know, even other litigation in a court of law, that employee handbook acknowledgement is very important, right? And some of the other forms, uh, like some of those state-specific forms also need to be signed off on by the employee so that they know about this information, right? We have to be able to prove that we gave them those wage theft forms. That's why the employee signs off on on them. Uh, So very, very important, you know, and then some best practice forms, Mike, emergency contact information, right? I can't tell you how many employers I've had that are like, yeah, I need to terminate this guy. He hasn't shown up for work. I'm like, did you call him? And, you know, they'll call and eventually, you know, somebody picks up and quite a few times, you know, unfortunate circumstances, you know, somebody, you know, has f- fallen ill and, and couldn't call in sick, right? Um, so, right. yeah, 
So emergency contact is very important. Health benefit enrollment forms, of course, are very important. Um, even the direct deposit forms, right? So we want, you need the information, you know, for the from the employee on where that direct deposit is going. But I just want to make sure that employers know that in most states, you cannot mandate. And for my best practice advice, I wouldn't mandate direct deposit because it gives disparate impact um, in many cases to a lower income population of employees that don't have um, savings or checking accounts, right? So you want to give your employees the option of direct deposit and the option of a check. And, th and that is something that um, I've seen a lot of employers make the mistake that they mandate direct deposit because it's easier for them. And, and we know that well, you know, on the payroll side of the house for sure, but you shouldn't be doing that. And in many states, that's illegal, especially, you know, again, New York, um, New York, California, Massachusetts, et cetera. Right. Just a, a, I mean, the, the common theme, and I'm, I, I know I'm cutting you off here a little bit, Mary, but no, that's it's okay. Just, it just over communicate, right? So there, you got your drop deads, your W4s, your I9s, um, but uh, uh, you know, if there's a if there's a strong preference for direct deposit for obvious reasons, it's easier for the employer. Um, a know whether it's even legal <laughs> where where that employee lives, <laughs> lives and works. Um, but B, even if it is legal to do so, you are the more you force people to do employees to do things that they don't want to do or feel compromised for some reason, all you're doing is inviting more anxiety in in uh, into the relationship and increasing the likelihood of them being unsatisfied, dare I say, report you for any other thing that may in fact turn out to be legal, but now you have this contentious, cost to defend uh, kind of issue. So uh, even if you don't have to legally offer both and you legally could uh, force people to do direct deposit, the, the more you can communicate the why you do it, right? And, and Correct. The options, including, oh, you don't have a bank account, no judgment, we have a, 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 a debit card, we can pay to that. And you can, Correct. right? There are lots of ways to really, uh, over communicate and remove the risk from the relationship when you force people to do things as part of an employment agreement. That, it's absolutely right. So, you know, what's what simply stated, unhappy employees are disengaged from the workforce and more likely to trigger litigation, right? Yeah, that's, so, that's a much better way to say it. Yeah, that's, that's right. Good. Period, end of story. And let me tell you something. Paychecks and money is very intimate, right? A lot of people live check to check, and that's why, you know, here at Assure, we're we're looking into options of, you know, paying employees, you know, on a daily basis, right? Because that that's something that some of our clients have, day pay, right? Yeah, right. That's what some of our employers have asked for, and that's something that you know employers should think about. How can I, you know, without spending too much time or too much money, make my employees happier because a happy employee is productive, 
right? And engaged, like we said. Um, and that, you know, also leads to, you know, a policy that everybody has to have, which is non-harassment policy. We know it's mandated in six states, right? Um, to have the training and a policy, but it is illegal in uh, the federal government, right? The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, says that harassment is against the law. So every employer, whether you have a handbook or not, should be giving a non-harassment policy. If you have a handbook, obviously it's gonna be in there right. or that's the right place for it to be. But if you're an employer who, for whatever reason, um, says you don't wanna have a handbook, uh, a non-harassment policy must be included in the forms that you give out. Um, and then, you know, Mike, you know, there are employment posters that uh, employers have to give. So we included in every HR package, we included in, in most payroll packages that we send you those employment posters. But if you have all these remote employees, this onboarding experience is going to be a little bit different. And those posters, right, or you know you can get them electronically need to be sent to your remote employees so if you have one employee in you know new york you know i'm picking on new york because i live there uh, they have to get those new york specific posters and the federal posters sent to them because they're not coming into an office so that's a biggie that employers forget about um and they need to know um to do that and and that leads me to you know what how are you onboarding your employees right are you making employees come to a location that is inconvenient for them and i'm sure if you're out of state that that's not something that you're going to do you're not going to pay to fly somebody from wisconsin to california just for a half a day to fill out these onboarding forms so are you using a system? And of course, we have one here at Assure. You know, we have a great HRIS system where that onboarding can be done, um, you know, electronically. Again, making that experience for the employee quick and easy. But, but you know, you need to make yourself available to answer questions. Um, and sometimes we even recommend, you know, you can get online with the employee and say, okay, click here, share your screen, click here, click here, you know, however you see fit to make that the easiest that you possibly can, um, it makes sense. And even if all of your employees are in Austin, Texas, it still may, might make sense for um, ease of those forms being put in electronic employee files to have an electronic onboarding solution. Yeah, yeah. And then, okay. you know, sorry, go Mike, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, if, if you had something else, I, I had one, one last question I was gonna yeah. ask on this topic, but go ahead. So, and then just the last piece is, and we started to talk about how to store and organize the I-9s, but as far as the other forms go, you're gonna put them in their employee files. So if I go back to state-specific files, like the wage theft forms, those wage theft forms for California and New York, 
can be stored electronically in the employee's file. Um, and by the way, um, for those employers listening, um, the Assure website has many of these forms um, available for you to download right off our Assure website. So just one-stop shopping <laughs> makes it really, really easy for you to, to download those. So don't bother Googling, just go to the Assure website to get these forms. And you can file them in the employee file electronically, or you can have hard copies in a file. Um, you know, for my best practice advice, I think electronically is just so much easier. Um, I've had, you know, employers that had floods, so the hard copies were ruined. I've had, you know, employers who unfortunately had fires or, you know, just something simple like the HR manager resigned and they have no idea where he or she put those forms. So electronically just makes so much more sense to me. Do you yeah. agree, Mike? hundred percent, hundred percent. And it doesn't mean one or the other. You can, if, if you like paper in uh, the convenience of paper, uh, uh, then you can do that and you can still have the scanned electronic versions stored in the cloud somewhere as backup, right? Um, my, my question was gonna be something you didn't have on your list and it's something I guess has kind of fallen out of vogue because it doesn't carry the legal teeth that it used to is uh, non-compete. Can you speak to non-compete as it relates to uh, the first thing you said, which is confidentiality, proprietary uh, agreements? Because I think that's probably where that kind of language lives in today's world. Yeah, I I do put them together sometimes, um, and sometimes I separate them, and I'll tell you why. Non-competes are very, very, very difficult to um, uphold in a court of law. Um, some states, like Colorado, um, make them illegal. Yeah. Um, and so because they are so difficult to uphold in a court of law, sometimes I will separate them. Um, and, you know, they are a best practice for employers, especially for your salespeople, even as somewhat of a, you know, please don't do this, right? Not, you know, the non-compete. But in a court of law, the, the, the barometer that they're gonna use is, does this non-compete stop this individual from making a living. And it's very easy for the employee to say, if I can't go, if I live in, in Austin, Texas, and you're telling me I can't sell to any organizations in Austin, Texas, I can't make a living. And you know, just simply stated, that's why um, it's it wasn't on my original list because it is state specific, number one. Yep. It is position specific number two and number three they are very difficult to uphold in a court of law yeah i mean so 20 years ago uh we used to use non-competes all the time um in yeah. between for, for all really all the reasons you said uh, uh we don't anymore uh but at, where i think the tie back and where maybe so whether you explicitly put in your confidentiality confidentiality and proprietary agreements uh, or uh, some type of separate agreement. What do you really care about? We, we don't necessarily really want to prevent that person from making a living anywhere, right? We care that they're not calling on the same exact customers 
uh, in and taking proprietary knowledge that they have about uh, our products to compete against us. To, so we don't want them taking customer lists. We don't want them taking uh, a product uh, information, right? The, the, those are the kind of things that really ultimately are important. But I think, uh, I, I feel like I've seen organizations make the mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here saying, oh, non-competes can't do those anymore. But then they don't uh, pr don't have agreements up front that give them those very reasonable protections that, that I mentioned. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, so when we um, advise an employer to use a non-compete, we do say that the best way to go is to be specific and to list those employers. So you can, you know, specifically, you know, these are the organizations we don't want you to go out to. And then we also would include a non-solicit, right? Um, yeah. And that, and that you can usually um, uphold, right? And they sort of are part and parcel together, but being more specific, geograph giving a geographic area. So instead of saying all of Austin, the South side or the East side or whatever, listing some of the um, organizations in, in particular that you don't want them to go to, giving it a particular time frame, right? So in six months, you can't go to them in six months or you can't go to them in a year. That will make it a little easier to uphold in a court of law. And again, um, you know, I don't want to mislead that we advise on a non-compete, non-solicit, but it is a legal form. So I would normally um, advise them to have legal counsel create that um, to give them to give employers the best protection. In in the area of great resignation. Um... It seems to me the biggest risk for employers is not non-solicitation of their customers from former employees, but the solicitation of employees. Um, can you can 100% you percent correct? <laughs> yeah. So so where does that fall in this landscape for because I mean that's not a non-compete. Go make a living in the industry that you've grown up in and developed your skills and relationships. Courts right. uphold that, right? but you can't be recruiting my employees to come with you, right? Right, right, right. And that, so, that's the non-solicit. What do we protect against that? You know, it, it is difficult, right? Because in most cases, so that would be part of the non-solicit, but in most cases, um, it, it acts more as a deterrent than an actual, we're gonna take you to court because a lot of times it's gonna cost more to go to court than it will, in the end you know save that employee and if that employee wants to go you know now you have an um you know an unhappy employee right right um and they're going to go anyway right and that is going to have a time limit on it anyway to be enforceable it's not forever you know that's not going to be upheld in, in a court of law yeah and i've talked to some business owners that i think have a very mature attitude on this that why would i put them in a why would I have a contract that forces someone to stay here if they're unhappy, right? I only want people who want to be here. Um, but that said, if you want to defend a non-solicit of other coworkers or em employees, even if you choose not, so the way I would look at it would be, this is, a, this is further documentation that would support the case 
should you choose to pursue it? So just because you have the agreement and they sign it uh, when they when they start with you, you can always choose to not defend that right or or that agreement, right? But if you do, it's just one more thing, one more one more validation that you have uh, in your support, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's shift to. I'm looking at the clock. We took a lot of time on. I think the most important stuff. I got a, a couple quick topics left here, but speak to new hire reporting not just paperwork. So um, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, they, they always come up with the longest names and even the acronym isn't, isn't easy, um, <clears throat> was part of the uh, well-formed re uh, reform uh, in 1996. And it's basically a federal government form um, that helps an individual um, be eligible or not eligible for the temporary assistance um, for for families, uh, basically, you know, welfare. So yep. it's it's something that employers need to do. Again, this isn't something that a lot of employers know about, um, unfortunately, but it is something that we should add to the list. They should add to their list. Okay, the P R W O R A. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's five times. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so uh, what specifically do employers need to report, and how frequently is this? Is this a a one-time event at the time of new hire? Yeah, this would be a one-time event. But if when you're talking about reporting, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about and it does have something to do with new hire is the other things that employers need to think about is if you're over 100 employees, you have an EEO-1 report that has to be done every single year. Um, and a lot of times you will need to give a self-reporting form to your employees because that EEO-1 report is gonna ask questions that you wouldn't know like nationality, like sex, which you may not know at, at time of hire, um, and other information about the employee. And additionally, if an employer is an affirmative action employer, meaning that they have government contracts over $10,000 um, and more than 50 employees, and there's some state uh, contracts that are, that are gonna be a little bit different, but if you're a federal contractor, you're mandated to create an affirmative action plan, uh, which is something that we also do for employers and they're very intent, like you need to be an expert at Excel, but there probably uh, or should be a sel another self-reporting form that you're giving to your employees. You can't mandate that they fill it out. Um, and that's why we like to call it self-reporting, right? You can report um, this information or not. And it's similar to the information that you'd be asking about that EEO one, but those things should be done at higher. Yeah. All right. Let's let's close on just so we talked about the uh, kind of some best practices for the planning, making sure work environment, computers, logins, applications, we're all ready. We got a positive first impression, and we're legally compliant. I think we kind of talked about this as an event. Um, how, do, how do employers stay compliant uh, 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 over over the long haul with, I mean, not with just their employees, that's, that's, that's a million other topics there that we cover on a regular basis, but knowing that regulations change 
uh, how do you how does an employer keep their onboarding process and checklist compliant? I think that it's something that has to be looked at on a continual basis. Just like you're looking at your handbook all the time, you need to look at your checklist and update it all the time. And, a, and something else to consider is that some forms get filled out right away, but if your benefits don't start for three months, you're gonna talk about it at hire, but you need to have a tickler file, right? We call it, um, where you're going back to the employee three months from now or two months from now so that they can then sign up for your employment benefits if they don't start for three months. So right. that checklist is really important as a living, breathing document that you're looking at. A lot of times what we'll do for employers is we create an onboarding checklist, but it also, that same checklist has an offboarding side right right there because we need to make sure that some of the uh, forms that we give them at hire are closed out let's just say um at offboarding right you know do you need to get keys back right um things like that so i think those checklists are very important uh we don't have we a template because it has to be customized for every employer uh, and that's what we like to work on. You know, that's one of the first projects that we work on with clients is doing that HR assessment and creating that checklist because it things change, right? As these employment laws change, your checklist has to change because you may have right. to give a new form that you didn't have to before. Right. And, and I think it's it's as simple and as complex as that. It's to, it's to coming up with the checklist but then having a checklist to review the checklist and a, and a regular calendar uh, to, to, to review that, right? Uh, yeah. and, I, and I think I'll probably use that as a place to, to close, Mary. And, 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 and I guess I'm gonna probably, you know, pick on the smaller employers because they, they, they struggle the most with this, right? So, you know, talked before, maybe you're an expert uh, landscaper, home remodeler, uh, uh, uh you know retailer uh, of of knickknacks you're 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 the industry expert there but you don't know hr and so maybe uh google your way through uh uh google your your your, your way through uh a, a checklist and handbook that may or may not be compliant but maybe 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 even paid uh, somebody to build you a handbook and build you a checklist at, uh, at first Small businesses just don't have the resources and the HR expertise to always keep up with these things. And so th this really is where we come in. So uh, on the far left side, so we, we have three very flexible offerings that we provide HR services to, to clients um, where we can simply support your managers. And all these, we, we review and build an employee handbook for you. Um, uh, and we can support your managers to make sure that you're legally compliant. Uh, for uh, the, the middle column here, strategic HR. It's still for managers, but now this is more than just helping the organization stay compliant. We're on offense. We're helping to, to, to build uh, 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 a program that we attract the right employees, build your employment brand, retain your top performers, provide ongoing training to your organization. So if you're in New York or California where sexual harassment training is part of the law, you must provide it. That's included in that kind of a service or all the way to the right where we, what we call total HR, where we really are that outsourced HR department where your employees are calling our staff 
uh, in having that professional HR coaching and guidance and feedback mechanism to help you become a more productive organization. Uh, uh, Total HR is still an absolute fraction, pennies on the dollars, compared to, to hiring a full-time uh, SHRM certified HR professional in your organization. Uh, in strategic HR and HR support for managers is a fraction of that. So uh, for growing organizations who can't afford that $80,000, dollars $100,000 a year uh, dedicated HR professional, uh, this is a way that we can help you stay compliant and build winning productive teams uh, on a fractional basis. So with that, Mary, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Mike. Your expertise. And if there's any way we can help anybody listening today with payroll, payroll tax filing, HR software, time to tenants, time tracking, or any of the HR services we've talked about, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, until next week, have a great time. Thank you. Bye.